So we're not leaving the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, but what we're doing is kind of going back a few chapters. If you have been following with us, you would have noticed that uh, we kind of made our way all the way to halfway through uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, and then we skipped one and a half chapters, and then we continued in uh, chapter 8, and then we made our way to halfway through chapter 10. And I made the promise that, listen, we're going to come back. All right, we're going to come back, and, and just the way that the letter kind of works its way, uh, we figured, listen, it makes a lot more sense to try to cover some issues that were happening in chapter 8 and 9, and they're going to really, really help us to unpack what happens in chapter 6 and 7. All right, and so we've titled this series within a series, Relationships and Sexuality, which I think I'm a little bit nervous getting into. We're going to be here for four weeks, um, and here's why there's a little bit of nerves, uh, and that is there's three things that, that generally tend to shrink a church. All right, and we're already kind of a small church plant, but there's three things that generally tend to shrink a church. Uh, the one is when we talk about race, all right, and everything else that kind of fits within race, it's super uncomfortable and people just don't want to talk about it. The other is money. So we all know that, like, man, just the, talking about money and, and entering into those personal spaces and sometimes even just uh, the, the way that the scriptures have been handled, which is incorrect, just make people feel super uncomfortable anytime money comes up. And then the last one is sexuality, all right, and sexuality. And this is a hot topic right now. Now, we could double-click this and talk about this for days, um, but my hope is that we would just kind of walk through the text, walk through these verses, these next two chapters, and just unpack uh, what Paul has written to the church in Corinth, and I believe it's true for us. He's written, this, he's written it for us as well. And so we've titled this series within a series, Relationships and Sexuality. And so this morning we kick off talking about sexuality. In fact, the title of the message is Becoming a Sexually Mature Believer. Becoming a Sexually Mature Believer. Believer. Now, let me say a few things before we jump in. The first thing I want to say is, I know I'm going to say a lot of things that are, may make many of you uncomfortable. In fact, some of you might even go, I completely disagree with what you've just said. But please don't check out. All right? Please don't check out. Maybe wait until we finish the series, because we're going to be building off one another. Each one kind of just builds off the other. All right? And so don't check out. Wait until the end. And the other thing is, please, let's dialogue, all right? Please, let's dialogue. Like, you can send me an email. You can uh, send me a text, a WhatsApp. In fact, you can come after the service and chat to me. And if your questions are really deep or if you have a lot of questions, I am happy for you to take me out for a cold, refreshing beverage of the fermented nature. And we can chat through some of those things. And depending on how long it is, I'm happy to uh, lend myself to you as you take me to Tribeca and we have some ribs. I'm happy to do that. Um, so guys, please, please don't check out. I know I'm going to say a lot of things that, that swim against our culture and our context and what people are currently saying. But my hope is, again, just to unpack what the scriptures are saying. This letter has been written to the church in Corinth, and so therefore it's written to believers. And so many of us in here are believers. We profess Christ. We say that we have crossed the line of faith. And so we must, we must look at the scriptures and go, okay, man, what, what does this mean for my life? But I also know that there are many in here who are maybe uh, on a journey. They're on the fence. They haven't quite yet said, okay, listen, I'm, I'm in. I'm still trying to figure some of this stuff out. I'm asking that you would just kind of continue the journey with us. That yes, a lot of stuff I'm going to say is going to sound really, really weird and old school and 
but journey with us and, and dialogue. My hope is that this would be a safe place to do that. So becoming a sexually mature believer. Let me, let me say this about this morning. Is that our initial context, for most of us, our initial context of sex usually determines our concept of sex. Does that make sense? Our initial context of sex, so, so how we first come to understand sex usually, not always, but usually tends to shape our concept of sex, our understanding of sex, our idea of sex. And that usually tends to set the trajectory of our sexuality or our sexual experiences. All right? As so I'm just putting it out there, just almost trying to lay the foundation for where we're going to go. Here's the other thing. I want you to know this, and, and I'm going to continue to say it over and over again as we navigate through the text, but I, I want to say it up front, is that if we're going to talk about sex, it's important for me to say this, that according to the scriptures, sex is designed to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. Sex is designed, it's designed by God to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. This is important for us to understand. And so I'm going to read Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. And this is Jesus explaining what marriage is. So if I'm going to make a statement like that, if I'm going to say that, that sex is designed to be enjoyed within the context of marriage, then I have to explain what marriage is. I'm not going to go too deep into it because that's for next week. Next week we're going to talk about marriage. But I have to at least just kind of lay it out there. Well, well, what is marriage? If you're going to make that statement, what is marriage? Matthew 19, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This speaks of marriage. That there is sex communicated in there, and it's been designed for us to enjoy within the context of marriage. And so Jesus draws from Genesis chapter 2 to unpack what marriage is. There was a debate going on talking about divorce. And again, we'll get into that in week three of the series. But, but then he says, okay, listen, before we talk about divorce, let me unpack what marriage is. And so that's what he lays out for us. And so I want you to hold on to that as we walk through the text this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can meet me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It'll be up on the screen as well. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text to you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me. Uh, that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine. Right here this very morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 12. Hear these words of our Father. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? 
For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it continues to move and transform the individual lives of people. And so I, I ask that you would do that this morning, a work that only you can do. I pray against any distractions here this morning, and I ask that you would meet us where we are, that this is a sensitive issue in our context and culture. And so help me to speak truth, but help me to do so with love and grace, to be compassionate Father, we are in desperate need of you, and so would you show us that in the text this morning? And so it's to that end that I ask that you stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my mouth those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May they be a sweet fragrance to you. God, you are our king. You are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place this morning? In Jesus' beautiful, beautiful name we pray. Amen. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. Now, uh, Corinth was an incredibly sexual city. I mean, it was, it was crazy. When I read some of the history of the city, it was incredibly sexual. And the practices of what the people were doing were, were so out there. I mean, it was nuts. It was, for them, it was normal. But maybe for us today, it's the things that we would look to and just kind of go, and you were doing that in public? I mean, men, would, would, men and women, they, they would leave work and on their way home, stop at the local brothel, spend time there, and then show up at home. And, and it was normal. They didn't try to hide it from anyone. It was normal. It was just a normal practice of the culture. So he's writing this letter to an incredibly sexual city. But we must remember that Paul planted this church, and so many people came to faith. Many became Christians. And so because there was a change of heart, they now had to kind of reorient their understanding of sex. And so he writes this letter. He writes these verses to address some of the issues that were happening regarding sex and sexuality. And so he writes in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now, we have to remember the past weeks, Paul's been talking about our freedom in Christ. Our freedom in Christ. They had written him a letter and they were saying, hey, listen, there's some issues happening here. A lot of legalism is happening. A lot of legalism is making its way into the church. And so people are going, oh, but I don't know if we should do that. We shouldn't do that. Don't do this. And so some of the Christians in the church were going, but hold on, don't we have freedom in Christ? So surely we should be allowed to do X, Y, and Z because I'm now free in the Lord. And so if you notice, all things are lawful for me. It's an inverted commas, because he's, he's quoting what they had written to him, what had become now a mantra in the church. All things are lawful for me, because I am in Christ. But I love how Paul engages. See, for many of us, we'll, we'll go, yeah, but it's still wrong end of conversation, but he doesn't. He, he goes, let me engage you with what you're saying. 
So he writes, all things are lawful for me. That is true, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial. Yes, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial for me. It would be like this. If I have an, a, a, a peanut allergy, hey, all things are lawful for me. That means I can eat as many peanuts as I want. But hey, it's, it may not be beneficial for you to do that. That's what Paul is saying. He's like, look, I understand all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. But he continues, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be dominated by anything. This is now making the point that, look, I understand that you guys are saying that God has created everything. That all that we see has been created by his sovereign hand. So, therefore, all things should be lawful to me. But he says, but I will not be dominated by them. Many of us are dominated by the very things that God has created. We are dominated by the things that he has created because now we've taken our eyes off the creator and we are now worshiping the created. And so Paul says, listen, those things are good things because they've been created by a loving, generous God. But I will not be dominated by those things. They, I, won't, I won't be a slave to them. Many of us are slaves to food and drink and relationships. All good things created by God. But be careful that we don't become dominated by them. And so he's, he's making a point. He's about to unpack uh, sexuality, but he, he needs to make this point. He's taking the very things that they are saying. He's saying, guys, you have great theology. The problem is your application. And so now he addresses the sexual issue in the city that's made its way into the church. Verse 13, he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Again, it's an inverted commas. He's quoting what they had written to him. Okay, but, but regarding sex, hey, Paul, isn't food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food? What, he, what he's saying here, think about it, he's, he's saying, listen, the way we understand that God has created us, our sexual organs, surely aren't they made for sex? in the same way food is made for the stomach? I mean, no one, no one says anything when, if I'm hungry, I decide to get up and go to the fridge or to the pantry and get something to eat. Right? No one panics. No one throws their hands in the air and is like, what on earth are you doing? Because it's, it's a natural desire. It's a natural urge. And so I, to satisfy it, I must therefore go and eat something because Food is made for the stomach and stomach for the food. And so they were saying, well, the, the organs, are they not made for sex? And so if I have a desire or an urge, should I not therefore go satisfy it? This is the point that they were making. This is how they, they were kind of engaging with Paul and saying, I think it's okay. God created these organs. And so therefore, should I not use them? When I have a desire or an urge in the same way, if I'm hungry, I go eat? These guys are smart. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to them. I was like, that, that is, I mean, okay. Never thought of that one. Where was that? Back in the day when maybe I could have used it. And God will destroy both and the other. He says, okay, I hear what you're saying, but, but God will destroy both and the other. This is what he's saying. That there is coming a time. There is coming a time where 
the stomach won't be necessary anymore. Because what's the purpose of the stomach? It's to digest food. And so when Jesus returns, there'll be no need for us to digest food. Well, why do we have the stomach? Why do we need to digest food? Well, it's to send all the various nutrients that we need to different parts of the body so that we can grow. Well, when Jesus comes to restore all things, we won't need that. We'll continue to eat good food. And I can't wait for the perfected ribs that will be presented to me in heaven. So we will continue to eat those, but there'll be no need for you to digest them and for the nutrients to go to the body and for you to grow because you'll be perfect. Mind, body, and soul, you'll be perfect. And so, so Paul is saying, listen, there's coming a day where he's going to destroy that. He's saying the very same thing about sex. It may freak out some of you a little bit. But there is coming a time where we won't need our sexual organs. Now, I believe they will be there, but, but we won't need them because, and I'm going to get to this in a moment, because sex has been given to us to, to, to worship, to understand intimacy, the intimacy that exists between us and God. That is why sex was given to us. And God is so good to give us such a beautiful gift to understand worship and, and intimacy and vulnerability. But there's coming a time where we will be standing before God himself and everything will be perfect and so there'll be no need for illustrations or examples. You'll have God there present fully. And so he's saying the same way that there'll be no need for your stomach to digest things. There'll be no need for sex to understand worship and intimacy. And so he says God will destroy both. He will destroy both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now again, let me give the definition so we're all on the same page. Sexual immorality is when sex is practiced outside of the beautiful design that is marriage created by God. That is what sexual immorality is. When it's outside, when it's practiced outside of, of the beautiful design of marriage, the covenant of marriage. And so he says, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, for many Christians in the room, they would have gone, that makes sense because I'm meant to glorify God with everything that includes my body. So yes, my body has been made for the Lord, but, but what do you mean that the Lord for the body? The Lord for the body? Are you saying that, that the Lord needs me? Don't, don't miss it here. Let me, let me try to unpack it. We need the Lord. I say this every Sunday, that we are in desperate need of a Savior. But, but when Paul writes here, and the Lord for the body, he, he's saying it in this way, that when we, when we live in a way that glorifies God, it gives him pleasure. That's what he means. It, it, it gives him pleasure. When we begin to live in the way that we were beautifully designed, God seated on his throne has a smile on his face. It's a little bit like this, when, uh, like a chef, maybe a world-class chef, prepares an incredible meal. It is now brought out to the customers. They sit and they smell it. And then they take a taste and another one and another one and they are enjoying this meal. It puts a smile on the chef's face because he sees the work that he has done 
and that the people are enjoying it. And so that is life for us, that when God sees that all that he has created and it, it works in the way that he has beautifully designed it, it gives him joy. It puts a smile on his face. And so Paul says, we should think that way about our sexuality. Not just about our worship, or when we pray, or when we, our sexuality as well, because God created it. He created it. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. I, I love, man, I love the, the arguments that Paul is giving here, because what people were saying is that, listen, man, it, it's just the body. Like, surely it's all about the spirit and the soul, right? The body doesn't matter because it's decaying. Y'all know that your body is decaying. So surely it doesn't matter. One day we're going to just put it in the ground and we'll forget about it. And so therefore, surely I should do whatever I want with it. Because it's the soul and the spirit. Like, that's what's important. Because that's what's going to last forever. But the body, come on. So let me, Paul, let us enjoy ourselves for the next 40, 50, 60 years. And so Paul says, I hear your argument, but... But God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The body matters. What Paul is saying is that the body matters. See, the argument was that it doesn't. It's all about the soul and the spirit. He says, no, no, no. Your body matters as well. Yes, it's decaying. But in the same way that God raised Jesus, body and all, he's going to raise us as well. And so your body matters Paul is pointing us to the fact that God raised Jesus, spirit and body. Jesus isn't hovering somewhere just as a spirit, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father in full body. In full body. They touched him. When, after he resurrected, they, they touched him. He's full body. Your body matters, guys. And we live in a, a time and a culture where... where for us to partake in sexual immorality, we have to tell ourselves that, like, this doesn't matter. My body doesn't matter. Like, who cares? Who really cares? God cares. The creator of your body, he cares. He's going to raise it up one day, just like he raised Jesus. But notice verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now it gets serious. Now it gets serious. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He draws from the words of Jesus. Who Jesus drew from the Genesis chapter 2. See, Paul describes sex outside of the beautiful design of God as a horrible sin. There I said it. You were wondering, does only believe that sex outside of the beautiful design of marriage is sin? Yes, because the scriptures say it. He says that sex outside of the beautiful design of God is a horrible sin, which involves taking the body, which is the personal property of Jesus himself, because the body is for the Lord, and using it in a sinful manner and actually paying for this. That's why he talks about prostitution, because this was a, a normal practice that was happening in the city of Corinth. They say, you guys, this is what you're doing, and you're paying for it. You're paying for it. Paul says that this is the equivalent of making 
Christ himself commit the prostitution. Involving the Lord of glory in an immoral and unacceptable act. Remember, Paul is talking to the church. I I have to say this over and over again. He's talking to the church. He's talking to those in the room who say, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. To those who call on Jesus. He says that when we commit sexual immorality, whether it's adultery, whether it's engaging with pornography, whether it's prostitution, any form of sexual lust, when we commit these acts of sexual immorality, because of our beautiful union with Christ, we drag the Messiah through the mud with us. That's the point that Paul is making. I'm not saying it, Paul is saying it here in the Scriptures. Because of our beautiful union with Christ, this this beautiful mystery that happens when you give your life to Jesus. You and Christ become one. It's it's crazy. It's one of those mysteries that I I fully don't understand. It's like the Trinity. How is three one? I, I, I don't get it. It's one of the mysteries of the gospel. Our union with Christ is one of those mysteries of the gospel. He says, listen, when you commit sexual immorality, because of your union, you are dragging the Messiah through the mud with you. This is how serious this is. This is strong imagery. This is why Paul uses strong language when he says, no, never. I will never do that. We should never do that. Who would do such a thing? See, the Christian union with the Lord is much deeper than even our understanding of sexual union. Paul goes back to Genesis. He takes the governing word spoken to Adam and Eve in the garden. The two shall become one. The very words that Jesus quoted in Matthew 19. He applies that, saying that this this momentary relationship that you are engaging in, this sexual immorality, this, this instant gratification that you are partaking in, This is how I like to explain it. See, when we engage in sexual immorality, when we engage in sex outside of God's beautiful design for it, it's like sitting at a table and going, I'd rather have Nesquik over this delicious milkshake that has been prepared for me. Now, Nesquik is nice. But in comparison to a milkshake, something that has taken time to prepare, Like, who would do that? Who would choose Nesquik over a milkshake? But that is what we do when we commit sexual immorality. When we partake in this instant gratification, something that has been created for us to to, to deeply understand the worship and the intimacy that exists between the church and God. And the thing about sex is that it's not just a physical thing. I know for many of us, we, we hear that, and, and sometimes we say that. We treat it as like it's just a, it's just a physical thing. But it's not. It's, it's emotional. It's mental. The, the point that Paul is making here is that it's spiritual. It's far deeper than just physical. That's why when, when people do have sex, like something just happens emotionally. It's like, like for some strange reason, I, we now feel connected to them. Even when we don't want to. And I know some people in the room would say, or maybe even know some people who are like, no, nah, I don't feel anything. I get what I'm out and in and out, and that's it, I'm good. 
You know what we've done? We've just kind of numbed ourselves to, to that. That's what we've done. That at some point we, we felt something, but as we continue to partake in it, because we don't want to, we don't want to go there emotionally, we don't want to go there mentally, we just kind of numb ourselves. And so over time, we just become harsh towards it. Not realizing that we're not only destroying ourselves, but we're destroying those around us. I'll get to that in a moment. Sex is more than just a physical thing. It's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual. This is why what Paul is saying is so profound and needs to be taken seriously. Paul is saying that something happens when we indulge in sexual relationships that is far deeper than our feelings even recognize. That in sex there's this intimacy. This intimacy. This in-to-me-see. That's what happens. You're opening up yourself, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally. And you're saying to this other person, I want you to see me, all of me. This is why when we, we know we're doing something wrong, we tend to want to cover it up. This is why we want to do it in the dark. I know some of y'all might say, well, it's romantic in the dark. Yes, it, it is. The right setting, yes. But you know when you're wrong, you cover it up, you don't want to tell people, you don't tell people the full story. Into me see. Sex is designed for intimacy. When sex happens, the, the body and the soul cries out marriage. That's what happens. Because that's what it was designed for. Sex was designed to, to be practiced in marriage. And so every time you engage in it, the body and the soul just, just cries out marriage. It's like this mechanical thing that happens. It's like, oh, sex is happening. Marriage. Covenant. And that's dangerous when we're not living in that covenant. And it happens every time. You move from one partner to the other. The body and the soul just cry Marriage, like what on earth is going on? Why is this happening so many times with so many different people? The body's designed that way. We were created this way. That is God's beautiful design. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, the Lord is spirit, and we are human spirits. We, when, when salvation occurs, when we come to Jesus as Lord of our lives and Savior of our souls, there's this fusing of identity that happens. This fusing of identity that happens. This is why Peter refers in his letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that we become partakers of a divine nature. We become partakers of a divine nature, that there's this fusing of identity that happens when you come to Christ. And so this is why Paul says this when talking about sexual immorality. Having understood everything that we've just now heard that has been written to us, how Paul unpacks sexuality regarding sexual immorality, this is why Paul says this in verse 18. When you see it, flee. When you see it, flee. When sexual immorality is knocking at your door, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. You know what the, the, the Greek word is for flee? Flee. To run, to run from sexual immorality. This isn't something that we play with. 
This isn't something that we go, you know, how close can I get to the fire without getting burned? Many of us play that game. Many of us play that game. And Paul says, no, 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 flee, run, get out, remove yourself from that environment, from that situation. Take it seriously. How, how do we take it seriously? Look, I'm not going to throw any punches or I'm not going to point people out. I'm just going to talk about myself. Because I need to flee. That may be shocking for some of you because you're like, wait, hold on, but aren't you, aren't you a pastor? Aren't you just miraculously like, like just become holy and all that stuff? Just you ne- No. I have to flee. And so one of the ways that I flee is, is on my laptop. I asked my wife if I could share this. She was like, totally. On my laptop, I have this software. The software that, that, that watches every website that I go to and then rates it and then sends a report to, to a few brothers who are in a, an accountability group with me. And so every time I, I get that urge, every time I be, believe the lie that, listen, it's, it's just the body, right? Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, bro, come on. It's just the body. I'm reminded that, now hold on, if I go to that website, there's three other brothers that are going to get an alert and they're going to pick up the phone and they're going to say, hey, bro, what are you doing? What are you doing? Flee. Another way that we can flee from sexual immorality is to be in community. See, we, we believe the lie that, listen, I can live on my own. I can live in isolation. I can do this on my own. I can fight on my own. No, you can't. You can't because God has, did not design us that way. We are made for community. And so we don't flee individually. We flee together. Get in community. Married couples, y'all need to be in community. For some strange reason, I thought this, like when I put this on, man, I'll be good. I will never desire to look at another woman in a lustful way because I got a ring on, man. It's a lie. It doesn't work that way. And so I need to be in community with, with other married couples and say, hey guys, like, how's it going? How's the battle going? What's, how's the struggle? Are you guys faithfully loving one another? Are you fleeing? Be careful the books that you read, the magazines that you read, the shows that you watch. If you know that they, they're going to create in you kind of like a, but let me, let me, let me, I can surely get close to the fire and not get burned. Like, I know I shouldn't be in the fire, right? But, but, like, if I stand here, I feel a little bit of heat, but I'll be okay. It's just a matter of time. It's a matter of time before you find yourself there and then you're going, how on earth did I get here? When everything is now falling apart, whether it's your marriage or just relationships, or it's like, oh, man, I, I had sex with that person and now it's kind of weird, it's awkward, and we're not talking to each other, we're not looking at each other. How did, how did I get here? Well, you were dancing around the fire, Believing that, listen, I'll be okay. Instead of the command that Paul gives us, and that is to flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Notice what he says. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. See, now many people have struggled with this verse because it seems to suggest that, that sexual immorality, whether it's adultery, whether it's pornography, whatever sexual immorality it is, outside of the context of marriage, we'll go, man, it must be like a unique sin then. That's why Paul says that. Suggesting that it is not like other sins, and yet we know that other sins affect 
the body. We know this. So Paul, what do you mean? We know that drunkenness and alcohol abuse, for instance, will destroy the human body. And that there are other sins that affect the body, like drug abuse will destroy the mind and twist the features of a person, turning that individual into a convulsing, nervous wreck. We know this. So why, did, why didn't Paul mention that? Even gluttony can destroy the body. Too much food distorts and damages and changes the whole beauty of the human body designed by God. Even too much hard work, and some of y'all need to hear that. That even too much hard work, you know, some of you sit and you're like, is that even possible? Like, is that, yes, it is. Even too much hard work will destroy the body. So what does Paul mean when he says other sins are outside the body, but sexual immorality is a sin against the body? Well, he gives the answer in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? That is why sexual immorality is different from any other sin. It has a unique capacity. It is this marvelous capacity to hold God, to be intimately related to the greatness and majesty and the glory of God. Basically put, to have God in you. To have God in you. This is what he means when he says that you are the temple of God. God dwelling in something automatically transforms it into a temple, and not just any temple, but a holy temple. But sexual immorality defiles the temple. It offers the temple to another. When the mingling of souls occurs in sex, as Matt Chandler puts it in his book, I love that, the mingling of souls. It brings the body of that person who is in the temple into a wrong union and therefore commits the sin of idolatry. That's what happens, and that's why he says, listen, this is why it's different. This is why it's the same, but, but also unique. Not only idolatry, the worship of another god, the substitution of a rival god defiles the temple. This is why sexual immorality has an immediate and profound but subtle effect upon the human mind and soul. It brutalizes us. It brutalizes us. Those who indulge in it grow continually more harsh and less sensitive and have less of a regard of the welfare of another, are more self-centered, more desirous of only having their needs met. A basic to hell with the rest. I want to do what I want to do and I'll get what I want. Now I know you might sit here and go, but not everyone is like that. The majority is. The majority is. This is what sexual immorality does. I have seen it destroy relationships. I have. I have seen it destroy marriages. I was about to share a story, and I was like, it, I, don't, I don't want to tear up, because it, it, it's a couple that, that counseled us, and, and to see that happen. A couple that we looked to, and, that, and we were like, man, we want our marriage to be like that. And it destroyed it. And this grows into something that wrecks humanity and the communities that we live in. Um, part, of, part of what's happening in our society right now with, with all this grabbing of, of females, I mean, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous what is happening. It's a reminder that we live in a broken world. But the grabbing is, is a result of our sexual immorality that's made its way into the culture. I want what I want. And so there she goes. I have no regard for her. She is no longer human. 
that I could stop the car and a bunch of guys just grab her and take her. Sexual immorality will grow. It will grow and grow to the point where it just destroys. It is like a cancer. It will start in the liver, but it will not stop until the entire human body is dead. Sin is this way. Sexual immorality is this way. Sin destroys everything in its path. And this is why, this is why Paul says in verse 9, right? So we're going to go back a little bit. Uh, I know we've gone back some. We'll go back even more. We skipped these verses a couple of weeks ago. Verse 9, this is why Paul says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Revilers are those who are aggressive with their language or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I know many of you, as I was reading that list, stopped at homosexuality and were like, wait, hold on. Wait, what? Now, now I, I know that I have to kind of address homosexuality, even though it's not the main thing in the text. Paul just kind of lists it, and I'll explain why he lists it uh, among a whole bunch of other sins. But I know for many of us, we'll, we'll stop there and we'll go, but really, homosexuality? Like, come on. So let me unpack it. I'm going to use... Two, three minutes. And depending on what happens afterwards, maybe we'll create a time where we unpack it fully. What does Rooted Fellowship believe about homosexuality? What does Honor believe about homosexuality? Now, now, I know that this is a sensitive issue. It's incredibly sensitive, and so I want to be incredibly gracious. But because I am a Christian, I also have to communicate what the scriptures say, that, that, that this is what dictates how I live and how I understand the world around me. And so I'll say this real brief. In answering the question, so what does Rooted believe about homosexuality? We say this, that the ongoing, unrepentant practice of homosexuality is a sin. In the same way that the ongoing, unrepentant practice of greed is a sin in the same way that the ongoing, unrepentant practice of idolatry is a sin. See, what the church has done is it's taken certain sins and gone, well, this one is worse, and this one is here, and this one is like, no, God sees all of sin as sin. All of it as sin. And so this is what the Bible says about homosexuality. This is why we believe that the ongoing practice, the ongoing unrepented practice of homosexuality is a sin. There's five verses in the Bible, only five, that talk about homosexuality. Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, verse 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 13. I'll put those together. Romans 1, 18 to 32. So chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. This passage that I just read to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 to 10, but I would go all the way to 11 for context. And then 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. That's it. It's only five places. Now you would think, now hold on, there's got to be a heck of a lot more verses the way the church goes on about it. But, but, but here, here's why I believe there's only five. Even though they are incredibly clear, is that God is going, listen, I want to put it out there, but at the same time, like I'm not trying to elevate it over another sin. And I've heard so many arguments towards this or against this that, like, no, but hold on, hold on. 
I hear what you're saying, but Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, so surely it's okay, right? The ongoing, unrepentant practice of homosexuality. Jesus said nothing about it. I'll go, I hear you, but there's a lot of sins that Jesus didn't say or talk about. Yet, we don't say anything about those. And I'm not going to say some of those because this is what people do. They'll hear me say that, the, the things that Jesus didn't say anything about, and they go, is he now comparing it to... Because I know, like, we do that. We take sound bites. In a 40-minute message, 45, <laughs> we'll take 30 seconds, and then we'll run with it. Oh, but he said that. Like, no, 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 no. So, so I believe God is going, listen, I'm going to give you five because I know your heart. You're going to take this and you're going to run with it. I hear some people going, well, okay, but um, yes, the Bible is clear about that, that the ongoing unrepentant practice of homosexuality is a sin, uh, much like any other ongoing unrepentant practice of a particular sin. But, but I think it's more towards kind of the aggressive homosexuality, the uh, exploitative homosexuality, because that did happen. That did happen. The master slave, that's what was going on, that, that, that there was uh, these, these relationships that, that were unwanted, that's what the Bible's talking about. But, but in Romans chapter 1, uh, particularly verse 27, Paul writes there, he says, um, the, the, the passion, the, 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 the passion that they desired for one another, for one another, this is consensual. Even that he speaks out of and he says, listen, guys, that, that is also against God's beautiful design. And then we could talk about marriage. And again, I would go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where we see marriage for the first time, and then we see sex within the context of marriage. Matthew 19, where Jesus unpacks, okay, listen, hey, we're talking about divorce, but, but in order to talk about divorce, or in order to talk about sex, we've got to unpack what marriage is. One man, one woman. We'll talk about this next week. So please, guys, don't check out. I know if you're sitting here and going, oh, I'm struggling to be, please don't check out. Come back next week, we're going to unpack what marriage is. But this is where we land on the issue. And notice, all I've given you is Bible. All I've given you is Bible. Remember, he's written this to the church. Now, now for those who aren't believers, we have a completely different conversation. So even what I'm sharing with you, I've written something, and I, and I shared it with some of my friends in the gay community, some of my friends who are gay, and by God's grace allowed me to have those friendships. And they're from wrestling with these desires and wanting to honor God all the way to, I don't believe the Bible. Like, I don't believe, like, I have friends in that spectrum. And so I kind of just shared this, and I said, hey, guys, can you have a read with this, this document that I've written? Not for your approval. I wasn't seeking approval, but I was saying, can you read it and just make sure that it's, it's gracious, that it doesn't come across as hateful? And each one sent back and said, yeah, man, sounds great. Sounds great. I mean, we've had these conversations before, these open conversations. They're my friends. The, the one dude, I wasn't going to share this, but the one dude who, who's right on the other side, he's just like, I don't believe the Bible. He goes, uh, yeah, what you've written, if, if I was a Christian, um, you know, it'd be something to think about. But by the way, I still think you're wrong on the matter because I don't believe the Bible. P.S., when are we having drinks again? He actually said that. Like, hey, when are we having drinks again? Like, I love that. I love the fact that I can have these relationships and engage in these relationships, but be like, hey, this is where I stand and this is where 
You stand. In fact, this is one of the things that he says in one of our conversations. He says, listen, something is wrong. Like, yes, the church has said a lot of dumb things. We've said a lot of dumb, hateful things. And we need to call that out. But he says this. This is my friend who is gay in the gay community who does not believe in the scriptures. He says, something is wrong with us when we now call one another bigots simply because we disagree with one another. And I love that. I was like, I was scared to bring it up, but I'm glad you did. Simply because it's like, no, well, I, I don't believe that. And like now all of a sudden, I haven't said anything hateful. I've just said, uh, I don't see it that way. To be able to do that and then continue to engage in relationships, guys, it's something that we need to do. Not to compromise. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying to, to have meaningful conversations. Where did we lose that? So, guys, feel free to send me questions if you have. I know there's so much more I could say, and I've opened up a can of worms, and it's... Ugh. But please send me emails. Please, please, please send me emails. <sighs> but notice what he says. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This word unrighteous, the, the Greek, adikos, unrighteous. Unrighteous simply means that, that those who do not have a relationship with Jesus. Because you can read that and be like, eh, will not inherit... You're greedy. I'm greedy. I'm a reviler. This is bad news for me. But no, he says the unrighteous. The unrighteous, those who haven't been declared righteous yet. He's speaking about identity here. He's speaking about identity because everyone is guilty. That's the point that Paul makes, is that no sin is above one another. And so all of us are guilty, but then there are those who have been declared righteous, those who have given their lives to Jesus. We are now declared righteous. But here's the thing, we still commit unrighteous acts. That's the difference. You are declared righteous, but you still commit unrighteous acts. And so that's why he says, and such were some of you, that used to be your identity, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. This is grace. This is grace. That Listen, this used to be your identity. But because you were washed, you were cleansed, you are now covered with the love of God. He says, don't go back to living that way. Stop committing these unrighteous acts. Live out of your righteousness now that has been given to you. We should stop committing sexual immorality because that is not who we are anymore. We are now children of God and so that should shape our sexuality. That's the point that Paul is making. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Oh, God, I know it's been long, guys, um, but let me land the plane here. We've got three more weeks of this. Paul sums all of this up beautifully. He sums up this, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He, he sums it up. We go back to our text by saying, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. This is what we call redemptive language. That you are no longer a slave to sin. You've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus has purchased you. Now begin to live out of that. That is the basic Christian truth. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. This is 
something every Christian ought to remember every day. Every day of his or her life that you have no final right to yourself, and it's a good thing. Hear me say this, that it's a good thing that God has designed, God has designed that we should make decisions. He does not take away our right of choice. He does not turn us into robots, but he says, finally, he says that one day we'll have to give an account for our decisions. We'll have to give an account for our decisions, and so make good ones. Christian, make good ones. God always reserves the right because he has bought us, he owns us, we are his by right of creation and of purchase. He reserves the right to take away from our life whatever he sees as harmful or damaging to us, whether we like it or not. He sees what we need and he gives generously to us. And then not only that, he then guides us through it. He gives us marriage but then he guides us through it. He gives us sex, and then he guides us through it. This speaks to his loving nature. We are not our own. We belong to him. And so God is glorified when any individual Christian begins to live on that basis, when they begin to say, Lord, you are the Lord of my life. And that is why Paul ends in verse 20 where he says, so glorify God in your body. So glorify God in your body that clear. If you are a Christian, if you profess Christ, if you have crossed the line of faith, then glorify God with your body. Now again, a whole lot could be said on this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to end it here because like I said, we have three weeks to unpack all of this, but, but the thing that I'm going to keep coming back to is if you're a Christian, then glorify God with your body. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whether it's in your dress, whether it's in marriage or sex, glorify God with your body. He has purchased you and it is a good thing that he has moved you from darkness into light, from death to life. But as I close, I'll say this, that I know for some in the room are wondering, gosh, this is strong language, harsh words. What about the sexual immorality that I committed a year ago, or six months ago, or three weeks ago, or last night? There is grace for you. There is grace for you. God has not turned his back on you. There is grace for you this morning that he extends his arm of grace towards you. And he says, I love you. And so because I love you, I want to restore you. I want to restore relationship and then I want to restore you. I want to make you new again. Don't walk away feeling guilt and shame. Leave that at the foot of the cross. Jesus died for those things. He died for those things. Oh, but you have no idea what I've done. It doesn't matter. But you have no idea what's been done to me. Jesus says, I died for that and I want to restore you. I love you and I want to restore you. And so I know that this is an ongoing conversation. That this isn't something I just said, it ends and you walk out of here, okay. That many of you are hurting. You are hurting because of what you've done or maybe what's been done to you. There is grace. And I'm asking that you would come and, and, and engage and talk and chat I'm here to talk and I'm here to walk a journey with you. We are here to walk a journey with you because we know we serve a God who restores, who makes new again, who loves you more than you could ever imagine and has a beautiful life for you, not just when Jesus returns, but here today. So let's pray. Father, we, we come and, and having heard such heavy 
words and, and for many of us maybe even stuff that we don't agree with. I'm asking that you would meet us where we are. I don't have all the answers. I, I am just another human being. Another way to say it is that I am just a beggar. I am just a beggar telling other beggars where to get some bread. And so we want to point to you. We want you to be the focus, the giver of all things, the giver of life, that you are not just the creator of it, but you sustain it as well. And so meet us where we are. Many in here are carrying guilt and shame. Many are broken. Many are hurting. But Lord, I, I want them to hear that they are not to carry this burden on their own. I know sometimes we'll, we'll go, no, but I don't want to inconvenience other people. No, we need to be inconvenienced. Because that's what the gospel does. It disturbs the comfortable. Many of us are very comfortable, but the gospel disturbs the comfortable, but then it comforts the disturbed. And that's also many of us who are disturbed. We're just wrestling with so much. The gospel comforts us. It pours grace over us. And so, Jesus, I, I ask that you would, you would love us. You promise it. And because you promise it, you will deliver it. Love us. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.